0: Welcome to episode four of Pod and Search of Man, the official student podcast of Heschel High School. I am your host who likes reading Marcel Proust, Theo Cantor. Oh my god. <laughs> Joining me as always, my uh, Ed McMahon, my Afrojack, get on camera. Hello there. Glad to see you're all uh, bright and cheery as we are. Hope you all got some sleep to recover from the Shabbaton, which was very fun. Yeah, wild times. Wild times, all right. So today we'll uh, play an interview we have of uh, New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning journalist David Leonhardt, who was the moderator of uh, last week's Martin Luther King Day panel, which featured also uh, New York City Deputy Mayor Richard Bury and Columbia law professor Alati Johnson.
1: Right. It's a bit of a throwback, but uh, we think that this interview is going to really bring out more of David Leonhardt's opinions that weren't necessarily uh, presented as he was moderating. Yeah,
0: and uh, he certainly is as eloquent in his words and speech as he is in writing. It's, it was really a great pleasure interviewing him, and we hope you enjoy it, too. David Leonhardt, thank you so much for coming to the pod today. Thank you for
2: having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast.
0: So, to start out, uh, we'd like to ask you how you think your role as a journalist has changed or transformed, or what it even is, considering today's current uh, attacks on the press and on truth and speech.
2: So I think there's a there's a narrow personal answer that I just want to give as background to that, which is about a year and a half ago, I switched from the news side of the New York Times to the opinion side. I had previously spent my whole career on the news side, where your job is more akin to that of a referee in a, in a sporting event or a judge in a trial, right? You were supposed to report the facts impartially and give both sides. And we can talk about how that's actually sometimes tricky. Um, but, um, but I've switched over to the opinion side, where it's my job to tell people what I think, right, and to make arguments, and, um, and so in some ways, that change over the last year, for me, has actually been bigger than the changes on the attacks on the press, so I just say that as background. I think there are, the notion that there are tensions between an administration and the press, that is the norm. I mean, I had members of the Obama administration call to yell at me because they didn't think our headline wasn't was, wasn't sufficiently positive for what they wanted, right? And I told them politely to be quiet, and they should worry about other things than not our headlines, right? Um, uh, I had you know debate with the members of the Bush administration, and so. We should not worry about the idea that there is tension between the press and an administration. There should be, right? Anytime you have journalists covering an organization, there should be tension between it, right? Uh, Ariella might not like me saying this, but there should be tension between student journalists and the administrators at a high school, right? (laughs) So, however, what we see now from President Trump is of a different level. Right, and I, th- and I actually think I would encourage everyone to read George W. Bush's speech calling out President Trump's attacks on the press. For President Trump to basically say that everything in the, in the media is fake is really problematic for a democracy, because it's not just he's not just doing it to the media. He's doing it to federal judges, he's doing it to scientists, he's doing it to the Congressional Budget Office. He's basically trying to get a monopoly on information. And so I do think it is really important to call that out. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, has called it an emergency that's a fairly alarmist word. In this case, I actually think it's an accurate word. That's uh, certainly concerning. And I know that um, you you say we should,
1: uh, you know, journalists should pay no heed to the um, vitriol spewed by authorities, but do you think that the the business of journalism is threatened? Do you think that the institution of the media, I know that the credibility is threatened, but do you think that the the institution of the media like could could newspapers or, or TV stations start closing down because of like the monopoly on the truth that has taken shape in terms of uh, what President Trump is doing? I
2: think I think President Trump's attacks on the press hurt democracy because it basically means that we don't even have a set of facts to argue over. And facts have always been in dispute, but but he is taking it to a new level. Uh, Alternative. Alternative facts, (laughs) right. I don't think... He actually is in danger of putting the media out of business. In fact, every time he specifically criticizes media, um, he tends to cause that whatever media he criticizes <laughs> to get a few extra subscriptions. Right. And so in a weird way, when he goes after particular media, uh, he, he is helping those media, bottom line. I, I work for one of those media companies. I still think it would be much better that he stopped doing that and we had a few fewer subscribers. But luckily, you do see in many realms of American life as certain democratic and small d-democratic Democratic institutions have been attacked over the last year and a half. You've seen people rally to their defense, you've seen federal judges rally you know, you've seen people rally to subscribe to media. And so I'm somewhat optimistic. There are problems in media that have to do with the digital transition to media and the loss of print advertising. But I'm actually optimistic that President Trump will not be able to stifle media in a commercial sense. Right. And mm-hmm. can you elaborate a bit on what those issues with the media you mentioned are? The, the, uh, the commercial digital, ones? Yeah. yeah digital. Digital. Oh, yeah. So this is a huge problem for a lot of a lot of publications. Um, the Times is in a very lucky position, but most publications are are really struggling and in in a very basic way um, advertising is what used to pay for media. It's true of TV, right? You didn't have to pay to watch the network news. You still don't. Um, and while you had to pay to get a newspaper, what you paid for that newspaper or what you paid for your weekly magazine didn't actually cover the cost of it. Advertising really covered the cost of it. And print advertising is in freefall, fall. Uh, and so um, digital advertising uh, just isn't as lucrative as print advertising for a whole set of reasons. And so basically what has had to happen is the very strongest media brands are able to go to their subscribers and play say, please pay us for what we do. And the New York Times is doing extremely well. We're very fortunate. We have three and a half million people paying for our journalism, so we're doing great. But a lot of local newspapers do not have the ability to go to people and say, give us money. And so what I really worry about, separate from the current moment with the Trump administration, what I really worry about from a media perspective is that local journalism plays a crucial role in a democracy, telling people what's happening at their city council, at their school board. Um, It can help get rid of corruption because people know that, that people are watching. And I don't think we yet know how we are going to replace the local journalism that has played such an important role in this country over the last many decades. So the greatest threat to the media may actually be this phenomenon that's been taking hold
1: throughout the country, completely separate from politics. Yes. Thank you. So I guess on a, on a different, slightly different issue that is very fresh in our minds now, coming from the panel discussion that you just moderated, um, we'd like to know more about um, your thoughts about the NFL protests. Um, that we got to by the end of the panel. So uh, you spoke of some of your views about them. So could you perhaps expand on
2: yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, I sort of, I, in the end, almost no one agrees with my views. <laughs> because on the one hand, um, I believe, as I said at the assembly, um, I think what the players are doing is really admirable. I agree with their cause. I think they are right that police mis- mistreatment of African-Americans is a tremendous problem in this country. I think it's selfless of them to decide they're gonna going to devote their time and attention to this when it actually for most of them they, they may be pulled over by police officers so it's not totally distant from their lives but these are very affluent people who mostly are able to go through their lives without a lot of problems and they are able they have decided they are going to spend their time Calling attention to it. I think that's enormously, enormously admirable. I think it's a good example of my colleague David Brooks had a column this week where he said, he cited John Stuart Mill, and he said, democracy isn't something you just kind of do on the side as a citizen. You have to live democracy. And I would argue that these players are living democracy. Having said that, I don't think it's the most effective form of protest, or I don't think it should be the only form of protest, because what ends up happening is that people who already agree with the players say they're not really protesting the flag. They're protesting these other things. It is not disrespectful to the flag. Kneeling can actually be a sign of respect. And I, don't, I think only the people who are already persuaded believe that. I think people who either oppose the protests or who are somewhere in the middle say, give me a break, kneeling during the national anthem is a sign of disrespect during the national anthem. In fact, it's intended to be. It's intended to say our country isn't living up to the ideals of the national anthem. And so I contrast it with the civil rights marchers who very consciously wrapped themselves in the symbols of patriotism. And they said, civil rights are more in tune with American values than racism is. And so Professor Johnson during the assembly had this lovely dichotomy where she said, sometimes the point of protest is just to grab people and make them pay attention to something. The players have been successful at that. Sometimes the, the role of protest should be to win hearts and minds. And I don't think this form of protest is going to win hearts and minds. And so... It doesn't mean I think they should stop. They certainly have the right to do it. But I think people who care about this issue should think a little bit about what are some forms of protest that might win hearts and minds and new people in ways that kneeling during the national anthem just isn't going to win people over. Yeah, you actually had a back and forth with Tanasi Kotz about this one, correct, right? Right. So I wrote that what I basically just wrote what I just said in a column and um, Ta-Nehisi Coates went on Pod Save America. I mean, he didn't go on it to talk about my column. He was on it to talk about his book and, and his great work. And he said, you can go back and listen to it. He said, he said something nice about my work and how he usually um, uh, uh, admires it, but then when he read that, he wanted to throw his computer through the window. <laughs> <laughs> so, And we kind of had a back and forth about it. And um, neither one of us switched our view in the course of it. But I, I, I certainly see his view. And what I ended up writing was um, he had a chance to se- essentially take our disagreement and, on Twitter and sort of turbocharge it um, and, and basically try to make me look bad in front of his followers. The vast majority of, I assume, agree with him. And he didn't. And instead of trying to turn it into a sort of spat where we were each trying to score points, he wrote me an email and he said here's why I think you're wrong, and here's what I wish you would spend more time thinking about. And I was enormously grateful that he did that because I think too often in our debates, we go from disagreement to basically it becoming personal and us trying to win a victory or make the other side look bad. And that's actually not the way you win hearts and minds. And so um, I was really very um, grateful to, he was pretty tough in how he criticized me, but I was really grateful to the way in which he did it.
1: Hmm.
2: And did you have, was there any shift in your views because of what he said? He got me to go read more about what these NFL players have done behind the scenes in order to push for more racial justice, and so in that way, yes, I didn't understand the the kind of detailed work that some of these players had done in order to try to reduce police violence, in order to get involved in their community, and it doesn't. The fact that I wasn't aware of that to me. Um, helps prove my point that the forms of protest aren't aren't moving people toward that but but he was he was really right that 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 these players are are taking this really seriously and it's not simply the protest and i wouldn't have known about that if it weren't for um the exchange that we had so, so on a separate note um you
0: recently wrote an article last week that it's like it's time that we all acknowledge trump is a racist yes <laughs> uh, it, it was a good article i read it that headline Thank-
1: certainly caught my eye
0: yes um, So I wanted to ask you, I guess, being that among Times readers, they have pretty similar political views, and all of them have probably a disfavorable view of their current administration and of Trump, what can you do as a journalist to, similar to what I asked them, the panel, to appeal to a broader audience without diluting your message? Particularly as a liberal
2: journalist writing for a liberal paper. Yep. So I think the first thing is that clearly the Times audience is more liberal than not. But we're also lucky to have a very large audience, right? And so our audience is not exclusively liberal, right? It is Congress. It is corporate executives, many of whom are quite conservative. It is, and, and so I think it's worth recognizing that sometimes we exaggerate the information bubble that people live in today. Right. And actually, whether it's the Wall Street Journal editorial page or the New York Times editorial page or Fox News or MSNBC, th- there actually is a fair amount of cross pollination. And, and so I, I, I struggle with this. Um, I am politically left of center, but I am also to the right of a lot of people who are left of center. right. Actually in some ways the debate over the anthem protest was an example of where I often find myself which is left of center but a little bit right of, of left. And so um, I, I think what I try to do is be honest about the conclusions that I've come to and walk people through why I've come to those conclusions and hope that in the process of doing so that you might persuade people. So in the case of the article that you're talking about, in which I argue that it's time to acknowledge that President Trump is a racist, the vast majority of words in that column um, in the online version were not me saying he's a racist, he's a racist, he's a racist. They were quoting President Trump's words themselves. And my hope would be that when someone, if someone sees me say he's a racist, that might not persuade anyone. But if someone sees Donald Trump saying he doesn't want to have a black accountant because he believes blacks are lazy, well, that might persuade them that, in fact, he harbors some attitudes that are not exactly race neutral, right? I did not know he said that. And so, yeah, he said it before he was president. Oh, my goodness. And, and, And if you look at this list, it's a long list right? So if you want to try to excuse any one quote as well, maybe he was taken out of context, it's really hard to excuse that when you look at the full list, when he calls the Hispanic Miss Universe Miss Housekeeping, you know, when, when he goes to, uh, you know, a group of Jewish donors and says, first of all, describes them as donors, and second of all, says, you all are negotiators. I've never been in a room with so many negotiators. I mean, I could go on and on, Native Americans, Korean Americans, um, Arabs, just again and again and again, you know, it is clear that he's, has an obsession with race. And so to your great question, um, it is very hard in our polarized era to persuade people. And the other thing I would add is, sometimes as a journalist, I like to write about subjects that aren't quite so polarizing because I think sometimes the opportunity to persuade people is bigger. So writing about how colleges um, uh, are not sufficiently socioeconomically diverse, I sometimes find it easier to persuade people on that topic than I do on a topic that the vast majority of Americans have really strong views and they've had them for a while and they're probably not going to change their mind tomorrow.
1: And I'm just wondering, what it, are, there, are there any particularly memorable reactions to your work that you've gotten from people who oppose your
2: views, uh, particularly as a journalist? Have you gotten any emails? Have you gotten any comments on the articles? So journalists get a lot of nasty emails, right? <laughs> and I think it's important to mostly let that stuff just kind of wash over you. Um uh you know, I get anti Semitic emails. Um, you know, about about how ugly I am and my nose and stuff like that. <laughs> and I think what's important to Realize about that, particularly if you're in a position of relative privilege, which I am, right, um, is to realize um, how much worse that is for other people. It is much worse for female journalists than it is for me. It is much worse for journalists of color than it is for me. Um, uh, fortunately, the more memorable emails I get are the thoughtful criticisms. The people who say, "Did you think about this? Um, uh, did you?" You know, it's things like the Ta-Nehisi Coates email, where you say, where someone says. Hey, I disagree with you, and here's why I think you're wrong. And those are the emails that are are really um, uh, quite quite rewarding to, to receive. All
0: right. Uh, so it seems that we're almost out of time. But I guess to finish up, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, and second of all, um, well, we wanted to ask you, um, as someone who has a lot to share, what is your ins- what is your words of inspiration, wisdom for the future journalists, activists, and politicians? who are listening,
2: what, what keeps you going that you think would help other people? So I mentioned during the assembly the fact that it, for people who were really depressed about the state of American politics, things really have been worse, and they've been a lot worse, right, in our country's history. And I think our country has a pretty great history, um, all told, particularly its direction. And so don't get too down, right? Uh, um, uh, people who came before us have, have dealt with um, worse things than we're dealing with now and managed to overcome them and keep going. My specific advice, I guess, for high school students um, is you all are getting a really wonderful education here, right? And you are in this very fortunate position that you have a lot of flexibility for what you can do in your lives. And I would encourage you to do some, do I would encourage you to keep two things in mind. Do something that you actually really enjoy. There is nothing you need to go do right? Don't go do something because you think other people want you to do it. Go do something that you actively enjoy because adult life is long. And if you go do something because you think you're supposed to become profession X or profession Y, you're going to get into your 30s and 40s and you are not going to be happy about it, right? Do something you actively enjoy. I'm lucky to have friends who love what they do and and you want to try to find something like that. And then think about a way that you can play a role in a community. Right, think about a way you can do something um, that, uh, that's not just about you. Whether that's in your job or whether that's in your volunteer work, but ideally in your job. Having a job that interacts with our community and our society with whatever your passions are. Because it is, not only is it sort of a good thing in the larger sense, but it is much more rewarding to feel part of something larger. And so for selfish reasons, I would encourage people to do something that is connected to something larger because I think you'll find it much more rewarding. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having yeah, it's me. It's been a real honor. It, Thanks for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you.
0: So we hope you enjoyed that really amazing and inspiring conversation with David Lienhardt. We hope that it leads you to do some introspection, what it means to be a civically engaged member of society, to be well-read, to be aware, and to be a member of a movement
1: or a protester. And especially for um, us high school students, and especially for those few of us high school students who are engaged in student journalism, like on the podcast or on the Helios, or- uh... We love you,
0: Helios. You guys are great, too.
1: So yeah, so especially for, for these students. Uh, David Lienart spoke a lot to that, to the importance of uh, getting an early start on that.
0: So if you want to stay aware and engaged, one convenient way to do that is listening to our podcasts. We are on SoundCloud and iTunes, hopefully soon to be on Stitcher. I've submitted it. It takes about two weeks to get in. If you have Samsung phones, the wait is almost over. This is the one thing better for the Samsung phone than HQ Live, which actually I've stopped playing because it kind of sucks. But anyway... (laughs) We hope you enjoyed episode four of Hot and Searching Man. We are a student production of Heschel High School, hosted by me, Theo Cantor, and Gino Kaminer, produced by Alana Nesbaum-Cohen. Thank you so much to David Leonhardt for coming to speak to us, and also to Deputy Mayor Bewery and Professor Johnson for their time on the panel. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Keep it lit.